All right, cool. What is up, everyone? So today we're going to go to the perfect crime. Again, I'm skipping the transparency of evil for now because I don't have a physical copy of it and I, I need to work with the physical copy uh, or at least um, an online version or a, um, like an ebook version or a PDF, but I don't have that because I suck. So for now, we're going to just go with uh, the perfect crime, which I happen to have on hand. So this book is really important and it's one that we can't skip people can't gloss over if they um want to really get into what you know Baudrillard is doing because he in this book he really untangles some of the more complex ideas that he's been working with up until this point <clears throat> notably in this book he makes the claim very um important claim that simulation is not the opposite of reality an idea that i know many people miss where some people would be inclined to think that there's some kind of telos, okay, where there's some kind of progress that goes from simula- uh, from reality to simulation, and this comes about with uh, virtual technologies or with information or anything like that, whereas Baudrillard wants to trouble that idea, whereas simulation for Baudrillard is in many ways the hyperreal or the more real than real or the injection of reality into the world. So what does he mean by that? Well, hopefully this book will come to kind of explain that. So he begins the book in a way that challenges what I just said. He starts out by saying this. This this is a story of a crime, of the murder of reality, and the extermination of an illusion, the vital illusion, the radical illusion of the world. The real does not disappear into illusion, it is illusion that disappears into integral reality. So in order to really get at this idea, I'm going to jump into the book a little bit to a rather important passage. So this is at the beginning of the chapter called The Radical Illusion, where he says that it is not then the real which is the opposite of simulation. The real is merely a particular case of that simulation, but illusion. So it is, for Baudrillard, illusion that is that which opposes simulation, not reality. Okay, so moreover, to jump a little bit later in the book, because we, you know you have to do this when working with Baudrillard, you kind of need to make your own narrative with it because it's so aphoristic. You know what I mean by that is that um, it's kind of all over the place where no chapter uh, is is part of like a sequence. Rather, these are these are um, kind of different ideas that come together in a fragmented way, like kind of fractals of a whole. So what he says later on page 38 is that we are no longer alienated within a conflictual reality. We are expelled by a definitive, non-contradictory reality. So this moment is very important because it tells us that for Baudrillard, reality is not a singular thing. And we can, I think, syllogistically... So we can conclude then that because reality and simulation are part and parcel of the same system to some extent, then we can apply the same kind of logic, (coughs) excuse me, the same logic to simulation itself, where perhaps we can say that simulation is not a singular thing either. So we have reality, we have, as he defines it here, we have the conflictual reality, which is the 
probably the better one. And then we have the non-contradictory reality, which is the oppressive one for Baudrillard. I will say, and perhaps someone would could trouble this, that the same can be said of simulation, where we can have um, a conflictual, which would be a good form of simulation, and we can have a non-contradictory, which would be the bad form of simulation, or the oppressive form of simulation. So what that means, or I think what is important, the biggest idea we can take from that, is that Baudrillard's notion of simulation, Baudrillard's notion of reality, or of anything like that, does not have some kind of inextricable affinity with technology. Whereas this is part of another system, really the cultural project of trying to demystify the world through, to put it quite broadly, and to perhaps um, give it more of a singular locus of uh, locus of temporality than it has, I will say that if what Baudrillard is speaking against, or speaking to, is the Enlightenment project, that project that sought to essentially demystify the world. So when Baudrillard is writing about non-contradictory reality, that oppressive form of reality, I believe what he means is that he is really against the idea that there can be this thing called reality, or in other words, this thing called truth in materialism or in anything like that, that can point us to some kind of realness to the world. A notion that for him would simply, he would simply ask, well, realness for whom? Who has established this realness? And then with his conversations about war, um, theories about war, it would certainly be a project of the West to try and make the world realized. So if we extend this idea over to simulation, I think that we can have a pretty interesting, we can formulate a pretty interesting theory that the oppressive form of simulation, because I'm extending it here from reality, because as he says, reality and simulation aren't opposites, um, the non-contradictory form of simulation being the bad one is that form that solidifies identity, or crystallizes people in a simulated form from which they cannot escape. So it's non-contradictory in that they, there's no uh, chance for mobility. They are essentially crushed under the weight of a sort of all-pervasive per- um, neo-colonial type gaze that reduces people to their simulated form. Okay, so all this to say, as a kind of preface, um, that bu- th- this book is really important for Baudrillard. So starting from the first chapter here, just the perfect crime, Baudrillard almost undoes his entire project, or at least the project that's sort of put forth by the title alone, notably that there can be a thing called the perfect crime, or that the perfect crime can actually be conducted. Whereas for Baudrillard, but the fact is that the crime is never perfect, for the world betrays itself by appearances, which are the clues to its non-existence, the traces of the continuity of the nothing. So this is a notion that he builds upon very slightly in one of his following books, The Vital Illusion. I hope I didn't just lie. I'm pretty sure that one follows this one, uh, where, he, where he considers the possibility that we can never actually fully eradicate things like the duel or the challenge or seduction, and that the world will always maintain them in some capacity. So when he says this, when he speaks about the way in which appearances might retain their meaning to some extent, or because we are always working at the level of images, Baudrillard is revealing the fact that we are always in kind of the first order simulacrum 
to some extent, you know, that kind of um, non-oppressive form of simulation that allows people through their being images, through their only ever coming into fruition, through their appearance, it allows them to get away from any sort of, let's say, for instance, biological determinacy or anything, any kind of discourse that seeks to ground people and to suggest that there's no movement away from that. Whereas images allow for a sort of mobility. Now, this is an idea that he puts forth in seduction when he talks about, um, uh, oh my God, astrology. And he says, like, he pretty much says that astrology is, is very important because astrology makes, like, shows us that the world is an enigmatic place and there are things that can happen based on these weird, I shouldn't say weird, based on these kind of, um, <laughs> what would be a good word, not weird, um, based off of these kind of superficial or superstitious hypotheses from the stars. Baudrillard says, why can't that be just as real as some kind of scientific hypotheses or scientific uh, approaches that adopt the scientific method? Whereas for Baudrillard, any of these ideas are they're, they're surely as valid, and we should take them as such. But with that being said, that does not mean that there is a giant enterprise of disillusionment, that's one of his quotes, that is trying very hard to eradicate the possibility of the world being aware of its mobility, the world being aware of the fact that it is only it does only manifest itself in the form of appearances and that there isn't underneath all the appearances, some kind of ontological certainty of the human, of the earth, or of anything like that. Rather, everything is determined to some extent by, I guess, uh, the, the, I guess people are just malleable in that way. They are determined by a sort of setting in which they find themselves, not to be totally, you know, relativistic about it, but I think that that would be, in a sense, the best way to kind of um, explain it here. So of this, he says, we can bear neither the void, nor the secret, nor pure appearance. And why should we decipher it instead of letting its illusion shine out as such in all its glory? Well, the fact that we cannot bear its enigmatic character is also an enigma, also part of the enigma. It is part of the world that we cannot bear either the illusion of the world or pure appearance. We would be no better at coping with radical truth and transparency if these existed. So in all this, opposed to those three terms he just gave us, uh, opposed to the um, the secret, the pure appearance, or the void, we erect this notion of reality, the oppressive form, mind you. And it really, when I'm when I speak about it as such, <clears throat> like I'm not writing an essay right now, so I don't have to really give this preamble, but I will. Um, when I speak about reality, unless I say otherwise, I'm going to be speaking about it in the oppressive form. So the non-contradictory form. So in this world, we for, for Baudrillard, reality is simply the dregs of the sacred illusion offered up to the jackals of science. So really, it is a, a sort of residual notion of a time long gone, or perhaps not all that gone, in the form of illusion that reality has borrowed from. Reality has some trace elements of this old form, but is ultimately taken up, to some extent, by these jackals of science. So technology, the thing that is often located along, <coughs> alongside Baudrillard's notion of simulation, 
is for Baudrillard, it, it occupies a sort of ambivalent space where he is, he's ambivalent about it, but it occupies an ambiguous space where he says that perhaps through technology, the world is toying with us. The object is seducing us by giving us the illusion of power over it, a dizzying hypothesis rationality culminating in technical virtuality might be the last of the ruses of unreason of that will to which <coughs> of that will to illusion 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 of which as nietzsche says the will to truth is merely a derivative and an avatar so this resonates well with rc arthur c clark's uh, idea that you know as technology reaches a certain point it'll be indistinguishable from magic was that clark wait i better check yeah, it was, it was Clark. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it'll be indistinguishable from, from magic, which I think Baudrillard is really speaking to here, where he doesn't want to be that kind of person that just simply disavows kind of technological um, developments, nor does he celebrate it, right? So he's, he's, he is ambivalent about it, because on the one hand, technology is part of that sort of system of reality that is oppressive, that attempt to kind of... Um, dispel dispel the world demystify the world kind of eradicate the possibility of illusion to come through but at the same time Baudrillard is suggesting that perhaps in technology there is simply a new rule a new game with or a new game with new rules that we must I guess abide by where it's not simply comprised of laws as certain theorists might say where technology is a sort of perfect operationality under the auspices of certain laws but for Baudrillard perhaps there's something to be said about the rule within the within technology where it is simply a new game so this this idea really resonates well with his um, notion of reversibility so reversibility and uh, which takes the form of seduction around the late 70s in Baudrillard's work reversibility is the notion that no system is perfect in in and of itself rather or the noumena i'm gonna butcher up kant a little bit but uh, let's put that aside um no system is perfect in and of itself rather every system is susceptible to its own reversion to its own um allowing into itself the kind of mirror of the the thing it opposes or the thing it opposes itself and effectively mirroring that thing so in that way, when Baudrillard speaks about the possibility of reconciling these old notions of illusion in technology, I think what he's, what he's getting at is that no system can be so perfect as to totally eradicate illusion or seduction or anything like that. Because as he says, if everything had been perfect, the world would quite simply not exist. And if, by some misfortune, it were to become so again, it would quite simply not exist anymore. Who's to say if that's even possible? But, you know, he gives us this this thesis or this hypothesis. So in all this, and he says, he has this rather interesting part when he says that existence is something we must not consent to. It has been given to us as a consolation prize, and we must not believe in it. Rather, for him, and I'm jumping a little bit here, uh, for him, the only thing we should consent to is the rule. But in that case, we are speaking not of the rule of the subject, but of the way of the world, in brackets, jeu de monde, or the, the game of the world, would be a literal translation. So in that case, 
I think we can um, insert here instead of rule of the way of the world, we can we can insert the the word object. So the sentence would read as follows. But in the case, but in that case, we are speaking not of the rule of the subject, but of the rule of the object. Where this is one of its central theses, thesis is these um, running throughout most of his works from about fatal strategies, where he really lays this out, where he suggests that the the object is that thing that rests us out of the determinacy of subjectivity, that gives us a sort of possibility of, in kind of the Deleuzian, Guattarian fashion of becoming. But it, for Baudrillard, this isn't something that can be really mobilized or harnessed as it is in Deleuze and Guattari, which it's not as though it totally is in them either, but I'm thinking of that moment in A Thousand Plateaus when they write that, uh, like, they call upon the reader to dare deterritorialize yourself, you know, you know, remove your face kind kind of thing, become a body without organs. Whereas Baudrillard would never say that because he doesn't see that possibility of necessarily... um, harnessing that power, harnessing that potential. Rather, this is just something that can possibly happen to you. And I guess if there was a strategy to be leveled, um, it would be one of the object. So it would be about maintaining the existence of the object that would allow for us to constantly question and constantly uh, challenge our notion of subjectivity. But this shouldn't be understood in dialectical terms either, where the subject and object are not two things that come together in a moment of synthesis. That could never happen for Baudrillard. Rather, it is their um, radical alterity from one another that gives them the possibility to exist. And Baudrillard speaks about this in one of his many interviews, and I can't remember who it was with because that was, um, I can probably find it, but it was one of his his interviews um, where he says that what is important when we consider binaries, we consider distinctions like, like the subject and the object, is that they are necessary because each one of them is the means by which the other can not only come into being, but the other can, can come to change. Where when we deal with two things like one of the one of the binaries that he speaks about often, or well not so often, but sometimes, um, the masculine and the feminine, for Baudrillard, it's not as though each of these things occupies some kind of um, determinate field. Rather, it is their being um, opposed to one another that allows them to enter a sort of dual, a kind of mutual challenge where they are forced out of their respective positions continually and kind of diverted into different paths, which would be the Latin um, notion of reversibility, reverses. <coughs> That is to divert from one's path, or seduction, I should say. Seduction would be would be that to divert from one's path, and that'd be French. So in that way, it, it, so this is this is an aside. I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but thinking about how Baudrillard considers distinctions or con- considers binaries is important, and it can be problematic at times. But it is pretty integral to grasping as a work because he's really opposing the notion of the dialectic, which runs through out all of his work, really. Yeah, sorry for all the background noise. I'm on the road, and I happen to be in a place where their furnace is rather loud, and I'm trying to, you know, soundproof this room as best I can. So to kind of get back on track here, um, he makes clear that 
illusion is indestructible, literally in its words, and this is page 19. Um, at all events, illusion is indestructible. Yet, he says just above that, that it is said that the state of nature is unthinkable because in that state, thought does not exist. But this is exactly what we are moving towards, a state of pure operational intelligence and thus of a radical disillusioning of thought. So on one hand, we have the idea that illusion is indestructible. On the other hand, we have this process of disillusionment. So which is it, Baudrillard? And honestly, the answer is, is, is tricky, right? Because, um, you know, we can go on a leap of faith and say that, oh, well, this is just kind of a, a separate system that is cap- actually capable of getting rid of illusion, but then we could be so, you know, we'd have to be a little hard on ourselves for putting forth that idea precisely because there are a number of places where Baudrillard says, no, no, it can't actually go away. But what I want to focus on here and what I think is interesting is that um, Baudrillard kind of locates the a, a, a primal state of existence. So in the state of nature, he says, where thought does not exist. So he equates the state of nature with the state of pure operational intelligence. So this is through like these virtual technologies or whatever that, you know, think for us and calculate for us and all that type of stuff. And it, it's really interesting how Baudrillard equates the two, where it's almost as though we're regressing, right? So this is Baudrillard's really, um, you know, pessimistic Platonism kind of coming through a little bit here but and it's difficult to kind of to to work with but what what i would suggest you know to put forward some kind of an idea is that as we approach a certain point through through all this technical total operationality what we can see happen or hypothesize might happen is the realization of a moment in which we no longer have to think so that we could take that a number of ways. We could say that that would mean that we are just, you know, we're stupid, um, kind of the rhetoric that goes around today, obviously. But it might also mean that we've attained a degree of singularity. So singularity is one of his ideas that he only really builds on later. I don't think we might get at it a little bit in this book. Um, I don't remember yet fully if we get into it here. But it's certainly an idea, idea he built on later where singularity implies that any system, any grouping, any anything really, is perfect in and of itself. So when we have a singularity, we have a we have a let's let's take like a community. We have a community that is so perfect it need not consider alternatives. So this would appear to be, you know, just mentioning this, um, it, this would be indicative of non-contradictory reality or non-contradictory simulation, that form that Baudrillard dislikes because it doesn't allow for change. So in that way, we open up another distinction. So there is not only oppressive solidification, oppressive kind of crystallization in the form of, you know, one's inability to change or develop, but then we also have the kind of emancipatory form of it, where people are satisfied within their kind of own cultural identity and what is important 
I think for Baudrillard, and it's almost as though we can apply a specific number to it, where if it's on small a small scale, like a town or a or a <clears throat> or any kind of or like a village or anything like that, this kind of moment can be attained. What Baudrillard really fears is that this occurs on a global scale, where everyone adopts kind of the same ideas in the form of globalization, which is to be distinguished from universalization, which he which he um, distinguishes in, I believe it's the agony of power, but we'll get to that. So we can make a distinction then between oppressive forms of singularity, or to keep in within the lexical framework of this book, or as he just presented it, we can arrive or exist in a non-oppressive form of non-thought, but we can also be in a in an oppressive form of non-thought. Just as we can be in an oppressive form of reality, we can also be in a non-oppressive form of reality. Just as we can be within simulation, we can, we can be, or um, an oppressive form of simulation, we can be within a non-oppressive form of simulation. I've never actually put that in words, so that was, that was good, but th- that's an idea that I'm sure many people will have problems with, and it's, it's, it's a really difficult one. Like, one day I'll, you know, I'll upgrade to having a video camera and I'll be able to draw this stuff out because it's, it, it is very visual and it'd be a lot easier if I could draw down the binaries. Um, but yeah, so in that way, you know, people use certain terms from Baudrillard's work, like simulation, hyperreality, reality, illusion, but people don't use illusion all that much, at least as far as I know. <coughs> Excuse me, Jesus. I don't know what's going on with my voice. Um, they use these terms without considering that in Baudrillard, they all occupy more than one, one identity. It's not as though any of these things can, can come to describe any given thing on its own, right? They're, they're meshed with, with a number of different meanings, which is, I don't know if Baudrillard really did this deliberately, but it's, it's really genius in relation to his broader project of resisting these kind of ontological certainties where none of his terms have a set definition, where none of his terms can really be grasped. Which is, I think, you know, one of the most interesting things about him, really. So to return to this idea of a sort of oppressive form of reality, he says that the perfect crime is that of an unconditional realization of the world by the actualization of all data, the transformation of all our acts and all events into pure information, in short, the final solution. The resolution of the world ahead of time by the cloning of reality and the extermination of the real by its double. So, in order to accentuate this point, he alludes to Arthur C. Clarke's story, The Nine Billion Names of God, where there's a community of Tibetan monks that are slowly and methodically uh, providing all the names, different names of God, um, and one one day a technician from IBM shows up and says, hey, you know, I could I could do this for you in like two days if you, you know, let me plug in my computer and generate all the different possible permutations of, of God. So the IBM person goes ahead and does it, and they come to find that after all the names of God have been effectively stated or brought into the world, then the stars start to go out signaling kind of the end of the world as though as soon as all things or as soon as all the names of god are made real or made apparent then 
the world ceases to exist. And Baudrillard uses this story to, you know, to kind of hypothesize the possibility that if all things are made totally real, then the world itself will cease to exist. However, it would be wrong to assume that, you know, these kind of virtual technologies indicative of the technician worker of IBM or any other technology per se, um, is in opposition to kind some kind of real reality or some kind of realness. Now, this is the discourse. You know, you can get this all over the internet. You know, people saying like, oh, you have to get away from your phone and get in touch with nature and all that kind of crap, as though you know nature is is has some kind of connection to a so-called realness. Whereas, as we know, nature only exists as such when it has been kind of been rendered subordinate to the metropolis, to the cosmopolitan um, scene. So in that way, you know, someone going to nature isn't actually getting out of the system, but they're participating in that very system that bifurcates nature from urban or, or whatever. So of this, Baudrillard makes a really interesting point. He says that um, the critique of virtual technologies masks the fact that their concept is seeping everywhere into real life in homeopathic doses. In denouncing the ghostliness of those technologies and of the media, one implies that there is somewhere an original original form of lived experience. So in this way, that sort of discourse of getting into nature or reality or whatever um, participates in another oppressive framework, notably the one that accentuates the idea or suggests that there is a there is a thing called reality that is tangible that can be found and that can be essentially harnessed whereas for Baudrillard all that does is participate in this hyperreal system where reality is made more real than real it's given a face it, you know people can say oh it's over there in the trees that's where reality is which is you know it bores me to death and this is my critique of you know, certain media like like Black Mirror or, or other things like that, like like a fantastic television show, no doubt about it. But people often get caught in, in a trap when they when they engage with those uh, those media because they believe that there is something called reality out there and that with our technologies, we are actually moving away from it. And I think that this can be uh, we can we can look at this in the same way as we've been looking at other key terms in Baudrillard's. Baudrillard's work, or at least how they can all kind of correspond to a different um, definition or different reality, where there can be an oppressive and an unoppressive form of nature for Baudrillard, where there, there can be that thing called nature that predates, you know, human consciousness, that predates um, a sort of uh, giant project of disillusionment. And then there's the oppressive form, where nature is given a face, where nature is kind of consolidated it's configured within the kind of cultural zeitgeist or the cultural imaginary in the form of a an emancipatory space in the form of a a productive zone that can be harnessed right and this is you know one of the things that the uh, some some marxists get wrong for baudrillard is that we cannot harness a kind of deep down libidinal desire within humans to oppose a system because that is that act signals more productivity than the system itself. It's rendering the body, it's rendering the mysteries of the body 
productive, giving them a face, giving them an identity, giving them a, I guess, a punch and punch out card, um, and, and making them work for you to some extent. And we do the same for nature in that way. But then we were presented with other ideas throughout this book as we work through it that make it difficult to reconcile, you know, a single idea. And this only emphasizes my point or elucidates my point that whenever we're speaking of any of these terms, Baudrillard means both it and its opposite to some extent, where he says this, McLuhan saw modern technologies as the extension of man. We should see them rather as the expulsion of man, as though in Baudrillard's mind there was this thing called man, I reluctantly use that term, or there was once this thing called the human that preceded these technologies. So it's as though Baudrillard is participating in that same kind of oppressive uh, rhetoric that you know, he would accuse those people, as I just mentioned, critiquing virtual technologies of committing. But, and I think this is our only way to get around it, we have to assume that Baudrillard is referring to the oppressive form of these kind of modern technologies. So it's a blanket term, you know, what are modern technologies? Are modern technologies like glasses people wear or hearing aids? Are they, um, you know, video game consoles or, or calculators, you know? Who knows what Baudrillard necessarily refers to or what he means when he talks about this, so we're kind of left to assume. But what we can kind of ascertain from this suggestion is that he's referring to the oppressive form of that system, the oppressive form of modern technologies that are seeking to purge the world of its illusion. So if we focus on one of one particular instance of virtual technologies, we can think of artificial intelligence where for Baudrillard, artificial intelligence is that zone or that kind of creation of a double of ourselves. <clears throat> Sorry again, my voice, I have no idea what's going on. So of this he says, so he says not only of artificial intelligence, but of all the advanced technological process points up to the fact <clears throat> that behind his doubles and his prostheses, his biological clones and his virtual images, man takes advantage of these things to disappear. So it is with the answer phone, we aren't here, leave a message, and the video plugged into the TV takes over the job of watching the film for you. Had there not been that possibility, you would have felt obliged to watch it since you always feel a little responsible for the films you haven't seen, the desires you haven't fulfilled, the people you haven't replied to, the crimes you haven't committed, the money you haven't spent. So we are all trapped then in a sort of, um, in a desire to you know, create doubles of ourselves that can go go ahead and do the things that, you know, this world demands of us, the kind of unreal um, demands of, of modern society that, you know, we use our um, our doubles to, to work on, to, our doubles to, um, I guess, keep us going. One example of this could be Instagram, where one of our duties in this present world is to convince everyone that everything is okay. So we do this by, you know, erecting images of ourselves, being happy, being great, being whatever, effectively to keep the system going to some capacity or to serve that function of the system. But in all of this, however, we always make mistakes. And Baudrillard is clear that, the, you know, and this is echoing his earlier statements that the illusion, ultimately the illusion of the world is indestructible. He says that the perfect crime would have been to invent a faultless world and withdraw from it without leaving a trace. But we cannot achieve this. We leave traces everywhere, 
viruses, lapses, germs, and catastrophes, signs of imperfection which are, so to speak, man's signature on the heart of the artificial world. So if these are elements of a sort of reality, what we can claim to be part of a real kind of humanness, <clears throat> that is contradiction, or those kind of negative elements of our lives, viruses and catastrophes certainly aren't good things, perhaps these are the things in the future that people are going to dig up, right? Or whoever is going to dig up and have as artifacts of our reality, where perhaps there will one day be, in Baudrillard's words, fossilized vestiges of the real as there, <coughs> as there are of past, as there are of past geological ages, a clandestine cult of real objects venerated as fetishes, which will take on mythic value. Already old objects seem like seem like real ones by contrast with objects from the industrial age, but this is merely a prefiguring of the days when the tiniest tangible object will be as precious as an Egyptian relic. So perhaps some of those objects that point to a sort of reality as though we were humans will be, you know, the remnants of cities um, kind of rendered unhospitable un due to nuclear fallout or something like that that point to the fact that there was a, there was still a thing called conflict right where non-contradictory reality hadn't seeped in totally where there was still the remnants of that notion of conflictual reality so these all these oppressive mechanisms then correspond to that notion of hyperreal right of the hyperreal or of the form of oppressive reality but Baudrillard makes a distinction then, a critical temporal one, where he says that reality exists then only within a certain time frame and a certain level of acceleration within a certain window of expanding systems within a phase of liberation, a phase in which our modern societies have found themselves until now, but which they are currently leaving behind with reality being lost once again as the same expanding systems undergo further anamorphosis in illusion, though this time in virtual illusion. So Baudrillard really brings this point up in a symbolic exchange in death when he lays out the three orders of simulation, where he says that reality really belongs to the second order. Reality is really that moment where we saw things like dialectics, where we saw things like um, the, um, the psyche with psychoanalysis, where we saw things like history, where all that is, is coming to an end. So reality exists very in, in a temporal sense, very, very, it's very limited. So then he brings up a, an interesting moment out of um, a Marx Brothers film. Um, I actually don't know which one. He just, he just says one of their films. <clears throat> but the Marx Brothers, for those that don't know, were, uh, you know, a few, I think there are three of them, three brothers that were um, actors and kind of movie makers back in the day. And I guess in the, you know what, I can, I have the internet here. All right, sorry, there were four of them, Chico, Harpo, Groucho, and Zeppo, and they were they starred in a number of films. I've only seen one of them, uh, the one titled Duck Soup, and w one of the things that they, one of their tropes is that they they really make a mockery of, a, of the thing called reality. They really call into question um, all of our systems of thought, all of our systems of understanding, and kind of turn them on their head. So there's this one moment I can think of where this was in Duck Soup, I think it was in Duck Soup. I may have seen another one, but whatever. There's there's this one moment when, I think it was Groucho, but one of the Harpo, one of the Harpo, one of the Marx Brothers is sneaking through a house while someone else is following him or vice versa. And 
one of the they think they're looking at a mirror but it's really some the other person mirroring all their actions at the exact same moment and this is like a really long scene it must have taken forever to film because it their their movements are almost identical until finally it's made apparent that you know he wasn't actually looking at a mirror but there was someone else there and it's super interesting and it really it's, it's very Baudillardian in the sense that reality is called into question or the truthfulness of it um, but um, but of the Marx Brothers, sorry, I digress. Of the Marx Brothers, uh, Baudrillard says that in one of their films, Harpo is leaning against a wall. What are you doing here? Someone asks. I'm holding up the wall. Are you kidding? Get away. Harpo then steps aside, and the wall collapses. Are we not all leaning? Baudrillard, Baudrillard asks us now. Are we not all leaning against that wall? And is not that wall... Of reality or is that not the wall of reality if just one person moved away the wall would come down burying the millions of people squatting this disused barracks this is this the situation is certainly one of a devastated reality and there are already innumerable victims buried alive in the rubble the point is not then to assert that the real does or does not exist a ludicrous proposition which well expresses that the that what that reality means to us, a tautological illusion or a tautological hallucination. There is merely a movement of the exacerbation of reality towards paroxysm. So paroxysm is an endpoint to its logical conclusion, where it involutes of its own accord and implodes, leaving no trace, not even the sign of its end, for the body of the real was never recovered in the shroud of the virtual the corpse of the real is forever unfindable. So Baudrillard makes apparent that there is kind of a collective agreement to engage in this notion called reality. We all engage with it in some capacity, as he makes clear in our daily lives. This isn't something that necessarily just happens in the on the internet or anything in the in the media or whatever. We are all constantly participating in it because it, it does not simply demand that we actually are in the presence of technologies or electronics or virtuality, but that we are within the very system that, I guess, uh, promotes the erasure of reality or erasure of the non-oppressive form of reality. So this threat is ultimately, for Baudrillard, a kind of ending of night, right? As he says, he says that the, the info-technological threat is the threat of an eradication of the night, of that precious difference between night and day by a total illumination of all moments. So it sounds like he's just talking about Kant here and Kant's distinction between the beautiful and the sublime, or the beautiful corresponds to the day, right? To, to the seeing things as they are, and the sublime is the, the night where things are obscured, where things are rendered, you know, up to perception to some extent. So it's almost giving away, or this system is giving away uh, the power of the sublime as it is connected to the nighttime in favor of the beautiful in favor of the obscene to be properly Baudrillardian the more beautiful than beautiful so funnily funnily enough it's only at this point really later on in the book around on page 62 my verso version where Baudrillard gives us a definition of illusion so of it he says that illusion is the quality of a world which, by the antinomic structure of matter, retains the potentiality of the nullification and immaterial return to energy. 
Illusion is the characteristic of what retains the possibility of wiping itself out by a violent reversion. Matter, antimatter, ab reaction. And, therefore, of passing beyond material objectivity. Matter and antimatter are indistinguishable in the absolute. They shine with the same light, they are distinct, linked to each other, only by virtue of the possibility of cancelling each other out. Only energy bound to restricted materiality, to our materiality, is doomed to dissipation and entropy. So this is particularly important <clears throat> in my mind because how I understand illusion, at least how he lays it out here, is similar to how I've been describing it over all these episodes or all these things I do, uh, where he says, where I believe that illusion is that very possibility of having things change, or in his terms here, uh, of of it, illusion is that which retains the possibility of wiping itself out, allowing even illusion to fall to the vic- to be victim to a sort of reversion or to a sort of disappearance. And this is something I'd love to write a book on this. Maybe I will one day. That I think the Baudrillard's real project is, you know, not as some people take it to be, where they consider Baudrillard a, a thinker of simulation or or hyperreality or seduction or anything like that i think that baudrillard is really a thinker of disappearance and what it means when things come to disappear notably conflict or contradiction and this idea really resonates well with another talk i did on another book um, by Calasso, the ruin of cash where Calasso says that sacrifice so sacrifice for Colasso is that institution that allows things to kind of be maintained to some extent um, in a sort of symbolic fashion. Colasso says that even sacrifice must be sacrificed, where we'll see the end of it. And it's a very, it's a very difficult idea to kind of wrap, you know, to, to accept. But I think that Baudrillard is saying the same thing here, where the radicality of illusion is in its propensity to not take itself even too seriously, to not fall prey to that objectivity model or the model of objectivity that pervades in the realm of reality. So in opposition opposition to illusion in this in this way, reality is that thing that doesn't seem to want to disappear. In fact, reality is always, always seeming to be more than itself, where we enter the phase of the hyperreal, right? Where it's hyperreality taken to the nth power where we have no there's no conception of the notion of um hyper illusion at least i don't think anywhere in baudrillard's work but we have this thing called hyperreal or hyperreality of which he says that we labor under the illusion that it is the real we lack the most but actually reality is at its highest by our technical exploits we've reached such a degree of reality and objectivity that we might even speak of an excessive reality i.e just you know, hyper-reality. So this is only made more apparent when Baudrillard says that we, what we lack most is a conceptualization of the completion of reality, which I think would, would mark its end. There, there is no end in sight for reality, just as there is the possibility of an end for illusion, precisely because we, we saw it, to some extent, get overturned by reality. And this sort of oppressive reality is in the service or in the business of dispelling or, or exercising ilu- um, negativity from the world. Sorry, I messed up a bunch of those. So the dialectic has indeed fulfilled itself. 
but ironically one might say not at all by taking in the negative, as in the dream of critical thought, but in a total, irrevocable positivity. By absorption of the negative, or quite simply by the fact that the negative denying itself has merely generated a redoubled positivity. Thus the negative disappears in substance and, if the dialectic has run its course, it has done so in the parodic like parody, mode of its elimination by the ethnic cleansing of the concept. So we are still forced to think this pure positivity, to think the de-past real, and no longer the peaceful surpassing of the real, <coughs> or its doubling in, in the imaginary. And in this form of reality, Baudrillard says that the extermination of the negative is therefore the final solution, but the die is not cast. The destiny of the positive of a system culminating in positivity and pure speculation remains itself enigmatic, right? So this he's only emphasizing the idea that the illusion cannot fully be purged, cannot fully be exercised. So it's very repetitive in that way, and I'm sorry, I'm trying, like, if you read this stuff, it's, it's incredibly repetitive, like, each of the books on its own, even though they're, like, gleaming little insights everywhere and little brilliant moments, uh, there, there are many repetitive um, arguments, and I'm trying to kind of sift through it, and I'm, you know, giving the spark notes coherent version as best I can, even though it's sometimes rather difficult. So we see then that, you know, through this whole system, we see a kind of being rendered object of the subject, which would, again, be, you know, we have to think of this in a sort of oppressive way, where Baudrillard, because Baudrillard wants to think of the object as being like the messianic savior of the of the subject or of the determinacy of subjectivity, where now what we are seeing with all these you know, virtual technologies or this hyper-reality or, or whatever term you want to throw in there, what we are seeing is the impossibility of a realization of subjectivity, right? But we still labor under the illusion that we have such a thing. So what he says is that the critical function of the subject has given way to the ironic function of the object. Once they have passed through the medium or through the image, through the spectrum of the sign and the commodity, objects, by their very existence, perform an artificial and ironic function. So we, it, we aren't thinking of this in terms of objects and subjects as perhaps they have historically uh, existed, and the relationship between the two can hardly be conceived of as, as being the same. In, in, instead, the, they each serve a sort of ironic function. So the term that he uses for that is pataphysical. Pataphysical is the science of imaginary solutions. It's kind of the quasi... It's the, it's the parody of of science, really. And both the subject and the opposite uh, object correspond to that in that they are made a sort of mockery of themselves, where the subject is that thing that is denied its subjectivity in the form of a total, like, apathetic indifference, you know, free-floating, non-control over its being, totally left to the whims of hyper-reality. And the object is that thing that's given a sort of determinacy, you know, artificial intelligence, the internet, Technology is given that agency that is being denied from subjects. So w we see a reversal here, but it's an oppressive reversal, where the idea of having the subject and the, op and the object reverse into one another and fold into one another is in itself not a bad thing. But when it occurs in this system that we have crafted for ourselves, then it becomes bad, just as simulation is not a bad thing in and of itself, only when it is 
paired with all of these other oppressive instantiations, manifestations, does it become oppressive or bad? So I'm going to end this this episode here by um, reading out the last paragraph from this chapter, The uh, Irony of Technology, about midway through the book. Then I'll take up the rest in the next one, where he says that we are faced ultimately with two irreconcilable hypotheses that of the extermination of all the world's illusions by technology and the virtual, or that of an ironic destiny of all science and all knowledge in which the world and the illusion of the world would survive. The hypothesis of a transcendental irony of technology being by definition unverifiable, we have to hold to these two irreconcilable and simultaneously true perspectives. There is nothing which allows us to decide between them. As Wittgenstein says, the world is everything which is the case. And the only thing that I can really say to that is that I believe it's, it's you know, Baudrillard just essentially accentuating the fact that, you know, this, this notion of illusion cannot be fully removed. And I sound like a broken record, I'm sure. But when he says that, quoting Wittgenstein, that anything is, is simply or everything is, is what it is, or how does it go? The world is everything which is the case, implies that any given system is still part of that world, and it is still part of that very um, illusion of the world, because that is what gives the world its meaning or its being. Notably, the illusion is that which, you know, pushes things into existence. So like on that note, I'll chime out here, but you know, I'd be super curious to see what other people have to think, especially if they have any problems with what I said, because this stuff is, it's difficult. And, you know, I'm in my own academic career starting to move past this uh, Baudrillard a little bit because it's difficult to ju- uh, to defend him, especially if you have um, really analytic thinkers that don't buy any of this, like uh, many definitions crap or many possibilities for any of his terms, which isn't to say that I'm <clears throat> that I'm going to leave Baudrillard totally, but you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to grasp, and I'd be really curious to see what other people have to think about it or have to say about it. But on that note, for any of you that listen this far, 